Welcome to the El Guateque podcast series. Today we speak with my very good friend here in Minneapolis, Sean Webster. Sean Webster is a superb, brilliant talent, and he's dropping a new book. It's called Gentrification or the Scene of the Crime. His book bridges essays, visual elements, concrete poetry, and a really thoughtful nod to the past and the thinkers that shape him. Uh, I think one of the things, one of the ways I describe his book in the podcast, or reading his book in the podcast, experiencing it, is it feels like you're walking through uh, an exhibition in an art gallery, uh, in a public space. And so just think of that as we're talking about the discussion, talking about the book, talking about what influences him. All right, y'all, have a good day. Enjoy the listen. Bye. Hello, Sean. I don't know why that my voice just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> you had that really good like radio drop right there. <laughs> hey, this affects me too sometimes. I guess mm-hmm. like, recording myself and doing all that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need to have a good radio voice. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's important. Um, yeah, let's talk about your book, man. So, uh, I think the way I wanted to start it is is when I was reading it. Um, it, it felt like I was in an exhibition because of the visual elements of it, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. It felt like I was, like, walking through, like, it, I was just reading it on my couch, but I felt like I was walking through, like, you know, some sort of, like, art space, and I'm looking at the visual, reading, I'm looking at the visual, I'm just trying to take it in, I'm just sitting with it, and then move, turning the page. So, like, mm-hmm. despite the fact that it's not lengthy, there's a certain pacing that slows you down because of the construction of the piece mm-hmm. that I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah. But, no, that's um. So can you describe just the the structure of the book? Because the, the tricky thing about a podcast with your book is that it's so visually centered. So we have to really describe it. Right. A bit. Right. So the book is called Gentrification or the Scene of the Crime, and I, my work is uh, like you said, yeah, it's very visual. So, um, the tradition that like my work is based out of is a concrete poetry tradition um a lot of times when folks think about concrete poetry or when folks think about visual poetry they tend to think about like you know sort of like these white bohemian like hipster <laughs> what's, what's concrete poetry dudes. Take me a step so like that. concrete poetry would be poetry that um really takes an emphasis in the um uh the way in which text is a graphic unit okay. and so like when um we think about the west the west has an emphasis when we're thinking about text like um if we were to put like a kind of priority like for how we think about reading in the west like we would put our emphasis on um sense first um you know um which is like what does the text mean like what mm. is it telling me um and then after that like i would say that we would prioritize um sound like mm-hmm. w- what is the sort of sonic quality of the text um as you're reading it, and, 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 mm-hmm, okay. mm-hmm. but visuality huh. comes much later down the line for us in the west right so like as we're reading in the text oftentimes i would say that you know there's these moments when when i read a text and i'm really engrossed in something that the actual graphic units that are providing our a vehicle for this like meaning sense kind of fade into the background mm, right mm-hmm. um and so a part mm. of like what it is that i think concrete poetry does that i really enjoy is that it disrupts this notion that um that the text is something that is just the vehicle um to bring you to the meaning but that it also carries meaning in and of itself right and so um that kind of notion of um the uh um the medium um is the message right so we well that would explain like the sort of challenge not it wasn't a challenge but like the way it disrupts my pacing Mm -hmm. because i'm focusing on the visual and i'm not necessarily used to even dealing with a really strong visual Mm -hmm. presence yeah like and i think that that's something that a lot of readers right like are maybe in when they're thinking about like you know a book itself aren't necessarily thinking about like text and like this um sort of visuality in that way what the font is Mm -hmm. like what does that mean Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the texture of the material right how it feels like in your hand Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how large is the text versus how small it is right and i think that that's again like i think 
that as somebody that also is a performer, right, like that a big part of what um, for me was important over time was to start to think about how um, as I'm performing work, how is it that the work and the way in which I'm performing it, the variation in sound right. can... The tonality, can, the diction. Right. Space. How can you capture that in some way on a two-dimensional mm. space, right? Like mm-hmm. that, um, that I think that mm-hmm. there's a lot of writers that... Um, that missed that and that and um and I think that that opportunity was something that one it opened up for me with like I looked at folks like Douglas Kearney and their work right um which is also very visual and also started to like tap into thinking about the ways in which folks like Jean-Michel Basquiat and that tradition of graffiti um informs this way in which we can engage with text um differently right mm-hmm. like that that it, it can be more bombastic right like that it can um, it doesn't have to kind of follow these really kind of rigid, sterile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I certainly, I mean, I thought about that a lot and I forgot to mention this before, but it also would be great for you to read something just so that people get a sense of like the tone of your voice and how you perform if, if you want to do that. Mm-hmm. But like when we recorded the Joseph podcast, it was so important to like hear him, mm-hmm. like hear his words because you want to carry that with you as you're reading the text, right? Right. And having known you, I, I can hear your voice like talking to me as I'm reading and it, it just creates a very different experience. Yeah, for sure. Know? For sure. Yeah, so I think um to to get back to what you were saying though like yeah like i think that um the you know the the way in which the book is 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 kind of paced and um and what it is that i'm i'm attempting at least to do in the book is to 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 speak to you know this phenomenon of gentrification and dispersal um but more generally to try to think about what Simone Brown calls like the management um, of black mobilities, right? That that black mobilities over time, particularly um, when we think about posts like enduring the transatlantic slave trade have been managed, you know, mm-hmm. um, by various like systems and structures, right? Um, and that gentrification is just one kind of like management of those mobilities, right? So, so I'm also, I'm wanting to, I'm wanting to, to like look at that as a way to think about, um, blackness and memory, um, as well as geography, but also wanting to investigate and turn, um, turn that on its head in some respects to like also think about fugitivity, right? So to think about the ways in which black folks themselves manage like these mobilities and say kind of means of resistance, right? Mm. So, um, fugitivity is also a big a big part of uh this work so like at the end of as you get towards the end of um of the text you know um you know it both i think begins and ends in fugitivity right um i talk about um well i want to get back in the fugitivity for a second but i think that's i think the sort of theoretical and historiographic intervention that you're developing is mm-hmm. is just in the name right the scene of the crime because Mm-hmm. The way in which, the way in which development, the way in which modernity, the way in which, uh, even gentrification, as it's described by political leaders, it seems it's always described as a nat- the natural order of capitalism, right? Right. This is the most natural thing possible. Right. This right. Is, this is what black people need to improve. Right. This is what poor people need to improve. Right. They need our colonization. They need our presence. Right. And that's that's but that but to name that as a crime is what's significant. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, there's a, um, the half has never been told, um, by, uh, Edward Baptiste, right, like, that book, I think, really beautifully captures, like, this language of how, um, when we're talking about, like, when, like, the, the way in which enslaved Africans utilized the word stole, right, like, how they were starting to describe their relationship mm. to, um, their enslavers, right, and utilization of this word stole, like, you know, that, like, that I was stole, right, and mm. that if I was stole, like, something, a crime was committed, right. right, and that not only was a crime committed, but that those who benefited from this right. are criminals, right, that you begin and, seeing a structure, mm-hmm. you begin seeing modalities and relationships. Mm-hmm. So then it's like then then everywhere here in this um, this nation, like is the scene of the crime, right? right? That that 
we don't there, there is no place that is untouched by settler colonialism right. here that there is no place that is untouched by the enslavement of african peoples right and so to then yeah. start to think about like okay um gentrification as a kind of um um connecting that to this uh this uh like that it that it takes its form it's a colonial practice right like so um, and that it, it's informed by colonialism, right? So then um, how do we start to talk about gentrification as another way of thinking about, like, you know, a crime scene, like a crime story, you know? Um, so, yeah, no, that's... And then the extrapolation becomes land, mm-hmm. body, mm-hmm. labor, mm-hmm. work, mm-hmm. you know, schools. Mm-hmm hospitals suddenly becoming worse right? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all the different ways in which like that impacts us as mm-hmm. in, within communities of color mm-hmm. and particularly more proportionally disproportionately on to black bodies mm-hmm. certainly yeah so that was really important to me and it was important to me to be specific to like say that i wanted to think about north minneapolis right as a um specific geography right mm-hmm. so like one of the early pieces in there is like this superimposed right. text of yeah. north minneapolis over and over again um but like bleeding down into it you see um is uh like um it says north minneapolis um and then looks a lot like the scene of a robbery circa 1492 right so like how do we think about like this post-1492 Colombian moment um, of settler colonialism. Um, and then, like, there are folks like Eve Tuck that talk about the double invocation of settler colonialism and anti-blackness, right? That, like, these things are thoroughly, like, connected, right? That we can look at spaces like Fort Snelling, which yeah. is not only the site of this massive, like, violence against indigenous bodies but is also a place in which enslaved africans were held Mm -hmm. is also a place where when you know you read this uh story um that's in this this essay this long essay called uh the negro in minneapolis um that was written by abram harris in 1926 i believe but like he writes about how there were these group of um black folks that traveled up to uh, Minnesota and they came up the river into St. Paul and were then brought to Fort Snelling and held there, right? Like that they Mm. were brought there and they were identified as contrabands of war. This is right after the Civil War, right? In 1868. And so that's a really, you know, interesting place for like black folks to then be brought to Fort Snelling, and then they were, it says that they were dispersed, right? They were dispersed to Blue Earth and Hennepin and Ramsey County, and, um, you know, it's a, um, that that was a, that was a site of, of these sorts of colonial acts, but that wasn't just, um, that was, that was thoroughly connected to both indigenous and black bodies, right? Well, and to complicate that further, right, that's where, that's where the immigration courts are, so now mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a site of crime for uh, right. African folks and Latinx folks that are right. trying to deal with their issues, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you mentioned North Minneapolis. For those folks that aren't from Minneapolis, can you just kind of dig into what North Minneapolis is as geography? Mm-hmm. So, like, North Minneapolis, I would say, is something that has been for a long time uh, imagined as black space, right? So a big part of, like, what, you know, this project is doing is trying to think about how, like, you know, one, in 1935, there was a map that was produ- it was published by um, Calvin Schmidt, and that map identifies a portion of North Minneapolis as the Negro slum. This map was a part of a study that he produced. It was called a saga, a social saga of two cities. Um, he was a sociologist at the University of Minnesota, and it was a federally funded project. This um, map, which was a part of a series of maps, like um, it, it identifies this portion as like the Negro slum, but the the. 1930 Hennepin County census shows that Hennepin County, which is a much larger, much, much larger geography than North Minneapolis, has 
um, less than 1% of its population is black at that time. So was right? it anticipating the movement so, of bodies? You know, a part of like what I'm arguing is that like, you know, there's this sort of not only like anticipation of like black bodies, right? Like that there's this concern that like, you know, even the hint of or notion of like black bodies of, yeah. starts to, the imagination around black bodies starts to change a geography, mm. right? <laughs> and so um, there is this divestment that ends up taking place, like a, a series of divestments that take place. There's a slow Drawing sort of shift, divesting. right? There's a yeah. shift of uh, the Jewish population that lived here at the point in time. Like, you know, there was mostly Eastern European Jews that were here in North Minneapolis at that point in time. Um, but I mean, again, like, you know, it's not like identified as the Jewish slum, which is not to say that it should be or that um, Jewish folks were loved at that point in time either, right? But that the antagonism that Jewish folks received um, was closer in proximity to whiteness than black folks were ever allowed to be, right? So they weren't allowed to be adjacent in the same way. And as a result, you see that this place here in North Minneapolis, which was a place that was a spot for immigrants to like, one get their start it was kind of a gateway community and then they left right like so when you know before jewish populations were here you had polish and german populations that were here but they were here and then they left and went to other places right so they went over either northeast and other spaces around the city right and so um north minneapolis becomes like that kind of hub but it it it's not something that um folks ever kind of anticipate to like be the place that they stay except like black folks right like black folks like end up here but they end up here and and getting locked into here right, right? you red can't lined right and, yeah yeah the redlining that ends up happening the racial covenants the ways in which like you know you have um very little um, access to transportation, like to get out, right? Like this is the only place in the city of Minneapolis that is still blocked off um, from the river, right? Um, and so you you end up having, there's no direct access to the river from mm. um, North Minneapolis. And so uh, it's got heavy industrial and has for some time had heavy industrial in ways that other parts of the city, there you see this, um, this like as, as other kinds of shifts take place, um, like in deindustrialization, that you don't see like the kind of heavy industrial in like other parts of the city in the same way for as long, which also impacts our air quality over here, right? So like these, the worst air quality in the city of Minneapolis or in the state of Minnesota here in this part of the city, right? So, I mean, all of those pieces kind of compound in ways in which I think become this shorthand, like blackness is the shorthand for that, right? So like North Minneapolis, like is the, um, it is is a way for us to, like it is a way for the state of Minnesota and the white racial imaginary to start to think about, oh, well, vice and uh, sexual deviance and like, you know, um, so like even like in uh, Calvin Schmidt's study, like, you know, a big part of what he ends up like discussing and getting into is um is sexual deviance right like and so it's not just that these bodies are racialized bodies right these are sexualized bodies in the way in which we think about um um the these sort of uh ability um for uh for for you know because i mean when you think about the black women that um were were sex workers here in this space um, we don't talk about the the folks that would come in and, and would actually uh, like receive pursue service and bodies, pursue yeah. bodies, right, right, right. right? Like and it and that was um, that was a, a part of the study, right? Like you know, mm. but it wasn't like I mean it, it, it's it's left absent in that way, you know. So so that's um, those are things that that I find like really like it's also just really hard to get up here. Right. Like uh, bus, freeway, whatever. It's actually right. really difficult to like find your way here. And also, it also right. creates an inaccessibility and a sort of almost enclave away from the rest of the city. Like mm -hmm. an intentional distance, an intentional mm -hmm. barrier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that that, like, you know, as we think about the now, right? Like that those things are connected to longer histories, right? So like we can talk about North Minneapolis now and the very many articles and the very many like you know news runs that like kind of identify this place as the place of crime the place that you don't go um the place that gets um kind of uh is is both um unseen uh as like recently like you know as like the super bowl where you had 
um, city pages that draws out like you know the city of Minneapolis and various neighborhoods and they don't have North Minneapolis as a part of oh, it. Oh, straight like, up didn't I didn't even see yeah. that. Wow. So then, so the so then you have this this degree to which um, uh, capital doesn't see North Minneapolis, and yet it does, right? Like it because right now. You know, the properties that are here over in North Minneapolis that are, um, you know, had been impacted by the tornado and the foreclosure crisis, right? Like that, these properties are very cheap. And so people are kind of getting in on the ground floor and able to purchase properties at a level where, you know, if you're a realtor, you can purchase a property, you can put a little bit of money into that property and you can make a pretty good amount of money, you yeah. know? Um, well, I think the other thing you're also hinting at too is, is the idea that, if there's no observance of a geography and the population that exists in that geography, you're also more easily able to dispose of that geography. Without a doubt. And that, there's not, obviously not like, there's not mass extermination happening here, but there's certainly, in terms of like, northern metals polluting people, as we discussed before, like mm -hmm. high asthma rates. Mm -hmm. Like there are things here that are killing people in a different way than they are in other parts of the city. That Without are really explicit. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Right. Like, so the exposure to like, um, various, um, not just the not just what it is that like folks are exposed to in the air but in the soil in your home right like the lead right like the amount of lead that we have in most of the homes over here um is is much much higher than it is like in other parts of the city and that has deep impacts right like so those things especially like when we're talking about young children has deep impacts and their long impacts right so um it roots long-term harm because our generations or your generations are therefore impacted right so so those are and i think that those things also become it, it becomes easier for us to like tolerate those sorts of things when it's just happening to low-income black folks right? right like when it happens to to like populations that we deem to be disposable then it's easier to think about the sort of naturalness of that right or that there's a kind of degree of responsibility that those populations have themselves for the bad shit that happens to them right that um you know why can't you just get your shit together right. it's and, a question of personal responsibility right mm -hmm. so so yeah like i i think that all of those things right like there's a, a hodgepodge of of um of stuff that i'm trying to like kind of um tease out through through the book and poetry which is not as dense necessarily as like what it is that i'm talking about here but um <laughs> or at least it like the modality for how i get at it isn't always like that but um but yeah yeah uh so so that said let me read a piece and um so this is u.s urbanity a folktale Our concentration marked us vile. So we elected ourselves bandits. Jackals howling, cunning things by morning. The whole earth bled overnight. But we licked dry bones too. And there is witness wedged between our teeth. And a lot of like a lot of what I'm wanting to get at is is about witness, right? Like so if you um read the quotes that are at the beginning of the of the book, right? Like there's uh three quotes that open up the book. Yeah, and, gorgeous, yeah. Uh, one is by Tribe Called Quest from We the People, all you black folks you must go, all you Mexicans you must go, and all you poor folks you must go, Muslims and gays. Boy, we hate your ways, so all you bad folks, you must go. Um, but but specifically also James Baldwin, um, which quote, I suspect all these stories are designed to reassure us that no crime was committed. Um, so, so a big part of what James Baldwin does in a lot of his work is to engage with the notion of witness, right? That... He um, thinks about witness not as a voyeuristic act, but like as a uh, engaged um, prophetic act, right? That witnessing is something that, um, that it requires something of us, right? Like that there is something um, uh, sacrificial uh, that is about it, right? That, um, that it's, a, it's a work that isn't something that, that, um, 
that you can stand off um, and just observe passively um, to as a witness, right? That that's not what witnessing is in the tradition of like James Baldwin. So I also want to think about folks not as like just overdetermined by the things right. that happen to them, right? right? That um, and that's where fugitivity is really important. You know um, that. Um, well, I just yeah, just I think I think the way I think about that, the way I hear that too, is in Latin America we talk about that as as being the subject and not the object of history, or mm-hmm. or in, in in moments of crisis and civil war in Guatemala, people always talk about the the sort of like the, the urgent need to sustain memory mm-hmm. because once we forget the violence inflicted on us, the violence that's where perpetuation happens, right? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And I mean, that's the, like, that's what the industry of war is all about, right? Like, you know, there's um, Viet Nguyen, like in his uh, Nothing Ever Dies, right? He talks about how um, war, and particularly talking about like the war, the American war in Vietnam, like he's speaking about how um, a, a big part of, of that war is, is what is, um, um, he, what does he call it? He, uh, he calls it the, uh, uh, but he speaks to the mass production of memory, right? Like that, that memory is this tool of war, right? Like, but both in the way of like what it is that we're allowed to remember, yeah, and what it is that we are forced to forget, right? Yeah. The that, representation of the acts and mm-hmm. then the the denial of the disclosures when those acts are challenged, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, as a journalist, right? Like, you, th- I think of the big moments of journalism, right? The Pentagon Papers, mm-hmm. like all those different things that fundamentally challenged the narrative the state was giving us. Mm-hmm. And these moments of, like, quote-unquote, courageousness from from the white owners of these publications to speak to it, mm-hmm. but not sustain an analysis that continues to question mm-hmm. and continues to challenge, right? Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. sparks of, of mm-hmm. the challenge of memory that aren't sustained. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, in some ways, like, yeah, that's our work, right? Like, I think that that's the work of, I think that's the work of, of um, you know, what uh, folks like Jared Ball would call eman- emancipatory journalists. Um, but I also think that's the work of, of the poet, right? Like, yeah. that poets are, um, you know, at their best. I think that they do journalistic work, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that's a, that's a part of, like, what I'm trying to engage. And I think, too, like, you know, that, that sometimes folks think that this isn't the, the terrain of poetry, right? Like, that... Um, engaging in like sort of um, heavy political kind of uh, topics like gentrification isn't something in geography and blackness and memory that to like engage in those topics is not necessarily the work of poetry. Um, but, and I think that they couldn't be more wrong, right? Like, yeah, think, that's not the work of poetry. It's, it's at the service of the master. Right, right. Like, right. And, and, I, and I think in, in art in this form too, I mean, that's as a, as a journalist that I'm writing things all the time, I'm consuming information, I'm trying to make sense of it, I'm quoting people, I'm dealing with the logistics of producing an article. Mm-hmm. I need art to help remind me of the abstractions that give me more clarity. I need that abstraction to help me like see past the rigidity of my form. Right? Mm-hmm. And if I don't get that, I'm going to end mm-hmm. up in the same sort of master narrative that, mm-hmm. that I don't want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean... It's important. It's important work. The artists help us remember, you know, like, um, and it and it's a and it's a way that I think too that that we're allowed to to think about um, to get outside of this sort of linear um, progression of time uh, as we start to think about memory. Um, and, and how we start to raise the dead in ways that, like, you know, folks like Alice Walker did when she talks about Zora Neale Hurston and finding her grave and these sorts of pieces. And I think that that's, like, that's the work, right, is that the artist has to, like, do the work of trying to piece together bone by bone, if necessary, um, the stories that um, that often get lost or are seen as insignificant or um, are deemed, like... Um, unworthy and how how to to like think about those as not necessarily ones where it's about speaking to a white audience right like how to like think about it in ways where it's not about well this is this book isn't an appeal to white people to be better white people you know um and to not fuck up shit in like other communities (laughs) right like you know which is like you know hey like don't do that right like but it's but it's more so a way to to try to like 
try to like complicate uh try to have a complicated conversation about blackness among black folk right mm. um so so i mean there are pieces in here that are trying to like think about like you know um the fluidity of blackness and to not think about blackness as so rigid um as as sometimes i think we uh can can be forced to uh, and, and start to regurgitate these narratives that like have this sort of rigid um rigid kind of blackness right uh, so like you know, there's a piece in there that like talks about um, maybe home, right? Uh, and I think that like you know, oftentimes like blackness is kind of seen as a kind of home in the same way as we think about like you know, um, the sort of mother country, like you know, in Africa, right? Like uh, as a homeland, right? But um, but yeah, like I mean, that's that's something where where I think that you know we have to draw in more complicated narratives right like you know in in that like you know blackness has never been stable it's never right. been stable it's always been more fluid it's always been on the move well I, well I think that's where and that's where the intervention for our community has been really significant because mm -hmm. you're seeing I think in the last three to five years like at least among popular writers or popular culture a recognition that there's blackness within the mm -hmm. Latinas community, mm -hmm. but I think that's situated in so to what you're talking about because it gives an invitation mm -hmm. for the the historical memory of blackness as it shows up outside of the United States without a doubt to walk in and be present and be righteous without a doubt because like most most I mean numerically I'm pretty sure and somebody needs to I don't know somebody needs to find this quote or validate this for me but but there were more slaves in the Amer in in the Spanish speaking Portuguese speaking Americas in the oh, United a States without like, a doubt. Undoubtedly, Brazil was the largest, right? right? Like you know, you had and the Portuguese were the worst, right? It wasn't the British that were really causing the problems. I mean, they mm -hmm. fucked up too, but like the worst was the Portuguese, mm -hmm. right? Right. So I mean, it's there's there's a lot to be said about like you know the the wear of like you know the the you have like these various destinations like for um, you know the slave ship and like transatlantic slavery, right? So. Um, I think that we oftentimes get caught up in in that, right? Um, but again, like to your point, right? Like is like um, is it this sort of middle passage? Like what uh, Michelle Wright talks about as a middle passage epistemology is like you know this sort of notion that like you know only black folks that have this middle passage history one um, are black right like it like right. the real black folks are the black folks that have like this middle passage narrative as a, as opposed to the black folks particularly that are like you know from the continent and they have maybe this this different relationship specifically more like with colonialism right like in, in thinking about um that history of colonialism to to britain or to uh spain or to various places throughout like europe right um because, and, because that analysis sustains the the sort of erasure of blackness within our society. Right, right. So then, like, you know, when you think about, like, you know, um, African immigrants, right, like, you know, those ain't black folks, right? <laughs> like, they, they just, like, you know, <laughs> they, they just, these folks with funny names, right, that I, that I then end up wanting to, like, you know, change my name to, like, you know. Um, without even necessarily kind of, and I mean, oftentimes too, when people are changing their names, they're changing it to, um, you know, a Swahili name, which has this relationship again to enslavement, right? Like to Arab, like enslavement, right? And yeah, this other form yeah, of like colonialism, yeah. right? Like, um, so that, uh, yeah, I mean, like, they, don't do not give me an Aztec name, man, because those right. fools were like killing everybody in their perimeter, right? I mean, it was an, it was a, right, like, empire isn't like a cute term it was an aztec empire right right so 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 there's that there's that notion that i can just like you know put on this like african name and then i kind of reclaim this african self in that way and i think that that's like definitely something where like you know black folks have this and i mean it's coming out of a longing right it's coming out of right. a true place of longing right, right. like because you had this dislocation alienation yeah but then, but then the way in which that's engaged, right, is that, like, you know, I can only become the true black person by excluding, like, you know, like, these folks that aren't the real black person, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and, um, and I think that that, again, like, that it's a, it's a colonial way, project, right? We, we end up, we end up regurgitating and, like, reprising this, like, colonial work, right? Like, we do that work for them, right? And, and the the wild thing too is like that's the way citizenship works right it's right. like you know there's uh folks that do a lot of like great work gay Teresa johnson talks about how like we 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 talk more about or we we identify more about what the citizen 
um, we, the citizen is more defined by what the citizen, who the citizen isn't, right. than from who the citizen is, right. right? Like, so I know myself as a citizen based on who is not the citizen, right? Who exists on the outside of that, right? And um, when you, yeah, when you orient your identity around what you aren't, mm-hmm. you're orient, and you are often are orienting your identity towards whiteness too, right? And we do that shit with blackness all the time, like yeah. you know. So, so I mean, it's about yeah. it's about complicating that, like you know, it's about saying like, hey, like if blackness is to be anything, it's got to be fugitivity, right? And that's like Sadia Hartman right there. That's like, and so it's like, how do I take how do I take the work of like Sadia Hartman? How do I take um, the work of folks like uh, Michelle Wright and and so many others, right? And and start to and start to like have a conversation with that as related to gentrification and memory and blackness, right? Um, well, and I think the service of, I think one of the things I like to be clear about when I talk about these things with folks is like the service of complication isn't to pathologize a person, isn't to pathologize a group, isn't to pathologize analysis. It, it works to find clarity. Mm-hmm. We have to complicate to find clarity. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. That, that is the challenge. It's full of tension. I mean, I think... You know, some folks would, would argue that some of your statements are controversial, but like like the notion of controversy suggests that there's a pathologizing of something and that's what really is the problem. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. If we're not finding clarity, we're mm-hmm. only serving the interests of folks that are I don't know, I'll stop there, but like the, the clarity, I mean that's all it's the dialectic, man. We got to go back and forth with you guys. Yeah. The, yeah, so I mean an intimacy and intention to figure out where the fuck we're going. Exactly. Exactly. So no, like uh so a big part of the a big part of the book too is like you know so so after um after the poetry right is the no, is the note section right like in which is really dense yeah yeah I so like, oh, when i got there i was like this is your brain this is just all the things that inform you mm-hmm. yeah, it was fascinating and and i think a big part of what i'm i'm trying to do in the book is like is to is to make one like you know uh, to to give folks a sense that the the note section like which I think is oftentimes like you know I read a lot of like I read folk citation practices right like I oh, yeah. I really I'm really interested to see like what it is that folks are informed by mm-hmm. um but I also think that like oftentimes like we look at the notes section as something other than the text itself, right? Like there's something like, you know, that's kind of ancillary to the text, mm-hmm. right? Like and I'm trying to like look at the notes section as a way in which it is an extension of the text, right? And so, um, really to try to show my work, right? Like to say, like, hey, like, you know You're sourcing your material. This is yeah. coming from somewhere, right? right? Like this is um this it's, is in conversation a, with something, right? It's a very historical practice. I mean you're you're showing your historiography, you're showing the mm-hmm. The debate that you're orienting yourself in mm-hmm. and you're also giving people a chance to i mean i think it's also like a very very big practice of accountability you're also giving people a chance if they disagree or if they feel mm-hmm. tension with what you're saying to find the root of that argument and make their own conclusions right and i think it's completely appropriate and it's an important thing to do as well right and how to do that in ways that isn't just about like um isn't just about quoting other authors, right? But also like having that conversation, right? Like so, like the moments in the notes section where I'm trying to like tease out ways in which like I'm just thinking about this thing, and and to just have that conversation, mm. um, and in ways that I would with with just somebody um, like like you at at Tracy's with the homies, <laughs> right? Like you know, right, so right, right. Um, so I think that, that that a part of it is to try to like to capture um not only the fact that like yeah like i think it's dope that y'all need to read tiffany king and what it is that she's laying down like in her work about evictions but not only that like i want to tell you why i'm so fucking pissed that like you know like in in certain ways that like bring out that energy um are 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 so excited about um what it is that like you know Dion Brand lays down and laying the light on, uh, and why y'all gotta get hip to it? Um, but it's like I think that a part of it is just like bring out that energy and that the kind of conversations that we end up having all the time, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, well, and that often like no sections just like don't got that they're so dry. There's so, like I mean I love it, but like shit is so dry. Like you know it's like um, it's. And 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 then and then they get lost, right? Like they like note sections, like like 
people just don't read them. I need people to like. I I feel like people need to read the notes. <laughs> like I hope I hope people read the notes section. Read yeah, the I mean, note. Read my read, notes section, read please. The notes section. <laughs> you will enjoy your experience. <laughs> well, because it's such a. I mean, if you if you think about the page numbers in your book, and then mm-hmm. also just the amount of space that the notes section takes, it's significant. I mean, mm-hmm. it it seemed really intentional when I was going through it, and it certainly makes more sense now that we're talking about it. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, again, like as a trained historian, like the notes section is everything. Mm-hmm. The notes section is where you find the subtext, where you find the orientation where you can find a way to really challenge the writer and not mm-hmm. to disparage, but just also to, to further complicate, to find your own voice and vision within that statement mm-hmm. and to see where you want to take it. Because I think, mm-hmm. I think the, the troubling thing when I think about other disciplines aside from history, when I was a grad student was the notion of a debate and the, the notion of domination mm-hmm. over an argument. And this is not what we're doing. Mm-hmm. We're extending, we're extrapolating, mm-hmm. we're, looking at places where there's just an unclear statement and finding clarity in that statement. We're applying something that's 30 years old that was amazing that needs greater clarification because dynamics have changed. Modernity is overwhelming us. Mm-hmm. Capital has taken on a new form that we can't entirely understand, that we need clarity on, and that we need tools to help us interrogate in a mm-hmm. better way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And th- that is the evolution of thinking. It isn't a debate necessarily. It's a, it's a construction that we're all attached to. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we're consenting to. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. you don't give people notes, they don't get a chance to consent. And that's a, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People need to consent to these things. Yeah. 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 And nah. That's how we sustain memory. For sure. And what, and what also becomes like a source is like, you know, something too that I think we need to trouble, right? Like is that it's not all like, you know, that not all texts are written, right? Like the, yeah. um, yeah. the, um, that we have to draw from from a variety of sources. And I think it's important that we show the work when we draw from the sources, right? Like that. Um, so yeah, no, like. There's an honoring and a respect there that's really significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So no, like that's, uh, that's a little bit of the work. I'll read one more piece and maybe, um, yeah, we can take it from there. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is called Astro Colony. Or I really like that one. an obscure rock in the Milky Way will gentrify also the scene of the crime. Low capital blacks, all that detritus and unrest will be shipped to outer space. To the most undesirable parcel in a single faintly explored galaxy of the multiverse. They will be sent no doubt for their own good, to this unfamiliar place in the Astros, a place decaying but of unique architectural quality. They, the low capital blacks, will be sent there, way, way out there, and they will make lemonade and chitlins and will usher some new sound to shake that little bit of rock until that too becomes a site of forced removal. Yeah. I mean, there's, there, there is like so much density, but like play in that. That's really fun. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's, it's an exaggeration of this idea of gentrification, right? Like when we can't stuff you into North man, because we're just going to send your ass to the moon mm-hmm. and good fucking luck. Mm-hmm. But then <laughs> we'll, know? but then we'll want that too. <laughs> Right. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Once you all make it hip and cool, then we're coming mm-hmm. back and taking that shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's like damn. Like it's, it's like, like oh Sean got sci-fi, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, man, niggas on the moon. <laughs> and then yeah. and then no oh, damn, like we actually wanted the moon. <laughs> like, oh, like white folks. Yeah. So no, like I mean in it at the end too, like, you know, there's the image of this uh um of the runaway that ends up like on like a lot of uh runaway notices like had this image of a person that had like a knapsack that they were holding um and uh that's a big feature that image is a big feature in in this book um 
because I wanted to think about one, like the notion of like running away and the notion of running, the notion of movement. Yeah, there's right? a lot of that in the book, right? Right, like right, that. Right. Um, Especially rooted in children too. Or, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. So like movement, like in terms of like black bodies moving, right? Like the black bodies moving in relation to like this notion of the management of black mobilities like Simone Brown was talking about, but also like how that management isn't just about like always being dispersed, but it's also like, you know, um, voting with our feet in the sense that, hey, I'm getting the hell up out of here, right? right. Or, um, Being moved, moving. Ghosting, right? Yeah. Like, you know, um, like the last piece in this book is called Gone, right? Like, because we gone. And a part of um, that image, right? Like, as you see, the like image starts to, like, be erased, like, piece by piece, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I think a part of, you know, folks may, may end up, like, reading that in multiple ways, right? Like, a, like, you know, black folks are being erased from particular geographies, mm-hmm. but, like, you know, um, folks may also hopefully come to read that also as, like, you know, um, that black folks are, are, are also choosing, like, to, to move in various ways that are not legible, right? Um, that are not legible to, to surveillance, that are not legible to um, the, tor- the sort of um, restrictive practices of the state, right? And not always in a conscious way either, right? Exactly. Like people surviving, people just kind of doing their thing, people right. doing whatever. And that everyday practice is a right. huge part of that fugitivity, right? And it's not always something that is so high-level organized that it's, um, you know, a part of this, um, you know, massive, like, plan in that way right like but that people's everyday practices of resistance are super important to the ways in which um when it's yeah rooted in the inertia of the historical experience exactly right like of, of your body and your generations telling you this is the appropriate way to like exactly find a way to live and yeah yeah i mean i think i think the and the idea of invisibility i think ended up becoming really important for me in my journalism on prison labor that i still will get published and worked at, at some point but you know, working on that for a year, thinking about bodies and prisons and blackness and custody and all that is, is I think, so we're, you know, we talk about prison labor, they get paid a quarter an hour, that's awful. They have no legal rights, that's awful. But the real crime, the real, the real sort of difficulty is the fact that when you're in custody, you're in a, you're buried, mm-hmm. you are dead. Mm-hmm. And those, the ways in which over time, through lawsuits and legal decisions that black bodies have no rights to labor protections while laboring in prison mm-hmm. is that erasure mm-hmm. is that denial of existence mm-hmm. and that's why it's so damaging and it took me like a year of like looking at this stuff talking to inmates wrapping my head around it to really get to that being the point yeah that being the root problem yeah yeah and that's like i mean that's how capital is made right like you know that that kind of um, we're, we're not useful we're dead right right yeah yeah no it's a um it's a trip hmm. it's a trip well speaking of labor so we got you quoted in one of the articles i wrote and to, to give the to give the context that i think the idea is is to the idea is that like you're also actively engaging in the world around you this, mm-hmm. i mean you're not just like this like abstract poet as we talked about before Mm-hmm. And the, the context here is that there's a group of workers at Franklin Street Bakery that mm-hmm. uh, have been in a legal fight, a, a labor fight for two years now, not, not so much legal, but labor, uh, with this owner who set up Franklin Street Bakery in the 90s around this concern around crime in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. was given monies from, the, I think, the state, at least the federal government and the city, for sure, mm-hmm. uh, to to improve right he colonized to improve mm-hmm. and these workers are largely folks of color mm-hmm. they were supposed to be getting paid a living wage they haven't had that as a condition of these loans or these government loans mm-hmm. and two workers end up in the hospital one with carbon monoxide poison or both with carbon monoxide poisoning one who had levels that the doctors were surprised she wasn't dead right mm-hmm. and so just to, to read uh, your quote here um Local writer Sean Webster disagrees with the premise. He argues that there is a class of people that have disproportionate access to credit, and the class of people exploits labor. The exploitation of labor happens in a variety of ways, including wage theft and the mind-body damage that arises under these conditions. 
In response to the carbon monoxide poisoning and revelations that Kostrowski was awarded city development funds to build the Franklin Street Bakery, Webster argues that the implications of what happens with exploited labor, the way black and brown bodies are treated as disposable, are a part of the nature of development, not an exception. Ultimately, the city tries token gestures with black and brown folks to establish a false sense of uplift, rather than making real and targeted investments where communities have an actual stake in their labor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and in that article I interview a, a city council member, and he gives a sort of typical response that's not specific to him as a person, that's just the sort of thing that you say when you're in those positions mm-hmm. within the United States, within capital. Without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, we're far too generous around this, you know? Like, I think... Um, that uh, these aren't some sort of like bad seeds of like uh, of um, the work conditions right that we see in like you know the United States and other places right like that um, this is like this is how most folks are working if these, they, aren't, if, these aren't exceptional right right if if folks are working right like because you also have a class of folks that are like you know um, structurally unemployed and are a part of like you know underground markets of sorts right like that that are criminalized um, to a mm-hmm. high degrees mm-hmm. so so definitely like I think that like you know when we think about specifically the work conditions in places like um, this bakery right that it's um it's something where when when someone gets these sorts of uh, this sort of access to credit, right? Like there's a few, like it's not many people that have that kind of access. I mean, right? certainly we don't. Right, <laughs> right, right. They're like nah, like you know, they uh, like right on the. But it's structural too. Like I wouldn't even have thought that that's even possible. Exactly. I wouldn't even know where to go. I wouldn't exactly. even like try to imagine that as a thing that I can do. Right, but whole geographies also are like marked off from that, right? So then when we think about Hennepin County, right? Like when we think about spaces like five five four one one zip codes get like marked in particular ways through redlining so that banks then know like that was a way for banks to say like we're not explicitly racializing the way in which we give out loans but i know that niggas is over in five five four one one so we just ain't gonna give loans out in this place right and so they knew like how to get around like these sorts of like liberal notions of like advancement and and equity um in ways that continue to perpetuate the sort of disproportionate um allocation of of dollars right that credit is so that folks were able to spend tomorrow's dollars today right and credit that was given at low interest is what opens up the space for folks to have like an entrepreneurial practice in the united states and the beginnings of credit is black folks bodies right we are the collateral like we were the collateral that made it so that folks could engage in these entrepreneurial ventures and so entrepreneurism right as we start to Mm. you know sort of naturalize it in this way is like it is it's born out of that right and so Mm. no not only ethically do i not like want to identify as like an entrepreneur but two like i know that i couldn't be one right because i don't have credit right like i don't like we're not given credit like you know so you get x'd out of it in that way and so it's about the folks that are these class of like entrepreneurs who can begin to like not only exploit like if we start to talk about it like has its origins right like to exploit these actual bodies and try to make them into commodities right um and literally like whether Kostrowski was involved or not in the actual leakage of the carbon monoxide is unclear right. and probably will never be investigated. Right. But the conditions under which his ownership of this thing right. creates literal toxicity and potentially death. Right. Right. It's about... And, and because he's he's using city monies and the city is thinking that he's some sort of hero in these areas, mm-hmm. he is actually protected. Mm-hmm. Right. His interests are the interests of the city and therefore they're one and the same. Right. So, I mean, it, it, the profit is kind of seen as a benign thing, right? Like, it's th- it's seen as, as something where, um, you know, it's it's morally neutral, right? Like, it doesn't, um, doesn't have to be bad, right? So, well, that's but, it, but it, like, but, but again, like, capital is created 
out of theft, right? Like, you know, this is, this is the origins of, like, capital, right? Like, it's created out of theft. And so it's perpetuated in this way. And, it, and I mean, various kinds of ways, right? Like, so specifically, like, if we're going to talk about, like, you know, the Franklin Bakery, I don't think that folks... Um, are wanting to invest money in ways that are trying to make sure that the work environment is something where everybody is uh is is safe to to standards that that they themselves would want to have like for the work conditions that they were in right like you know the people that own like things like those bakeries aren't going to work in those conditions right um rarely would they even walk into them exactly exactly because that's not what it is that I assume as an owner that I'm going to have to like do, right? Also and gives so, you a plausible deniability because you've never actually seen the conditions. So why then do we do that? Like for workers, these are disposable like populations, yeah. right? Even if we're not explicitly saying that these populations are disposable. And so I think a part of it is about how do we like, uh, like how do we disturb that kind of naturalizing of like workers' disposability, right? And also like how is it that we start to push back on um, this this notion that okay well a mistake was made and um and and the city will do what's best to like try to correct it um through holding like you know these kinds of like forms of like accountability um but it never really kind of drives it home like you know like folks um still continue to like work in conditions like that often um wages are still stagnant that's uh, considered the standard, right? Right. And I, and I think what was difficult for me in, in developing that article is I, I wanted to answer the question, at what point does someone like Kostrowski with these conditions, with that toxicity, uh, is held like, criminally accountable for what's done there? Mm-hmm. And the answer simply is not. There's no way. Mm-hmm. The, the sort of the machinations of the state aren't designed to mm-hmm. hold accountability for folks that cause harm on a mm-hmm. regular, st- structural, consistent basis. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it goes back again, like, you know, to, to requote Baldwin, like it goes back to that, like all these stories were shared to reassure us that no crime was committed, yeah. right? Like that our bodies and lives get narrativized in such a way where it reassures folks that consider themselves to be a part of this nation that no crime was and is being committed right um but contrary to that i think that we have to start talking about this story as a crime story right and by this story i mean the story of this nation right this nation um is the scene of the crime and and whether we're talking about gentrification or whether we're talking about um, the sort of toxicity uh, within a bakery uh, and the conditions that workers are, are working in. Like, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a crime story, yeah. right? The necessary exploitative conditions that generate profit. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't exploit, you fail. Mm-hmm. 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 Right. And folks think that you can commit that kind of crime and you, you can continue to rob in that way because you are robbing folks right like you're robbing folks of their wages you're robbing folks of their health um that folks think that you can continue to rob in that way and that when you get caught you just say oops and that 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 you don't that it cannot that are should not cost you anything like and i'm saying that there needs to be a material cost uh to folks like to what we envision as any form of like accountability right um because it takes it i mean in in researching it again talking to osha talking to the county attorney talking to city council member mm -hmm. members talking to other folks it takes a lot of people to buy into it Mm -hmm. so that accountability never happens Mm -hmm. it takes a lot of people agreeing to their little piece of life that they're not going to look above and say what is this about Mm -hmm. you know Mm mm-hmm but instead, people are like, this is the job, these are the conditions, mm-hmm. therefore, I'm not going to be involved in thinking about this further and thinking about the possibility of accountability. Mm-hmm. For sure. And that's where it gets really cryptic and difficult for me, because I, not like I really knew OSHA or knew these laws well, I, I just, this is the first time I was dealing with this sort of, like, with this sort of context, and it was just, it was just really disturbing, you know, yeah. to really come to grips with the disposed... We always talk about disposability. We've talked about it in, in regards to the killing of Jamar Clark, Philando Castillo, et cetera. 
And it's not like it's ever, it's never surprising, but it's not like it's ever comfortable to really face it and dialogue with it in a direct way. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what's always just really, not even being the person that was harmed myself, there is still harm for me in trying to make sense of these things and give it a voice and a story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. It's a reminder that at some point I'll be disposable too, and if I haven't been already. Right. 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 Yeah. No, but you got to keep on doing the work. You got to mm-hmm. keep on doing the work. Well. Well, I think I think keep on doing the work, but doing the work in a way that gives us the best voice that we can give to this world, right? And I think that's where it's fun to, like, be a journalist, doing my journalism, because I really feel good about the sort of the way in which I'm writing, telling stories, finding my voice. And I think equally for you, I mean... Your poetry is is offering, you know, not to say that one is better than the other, right? Like the point is that we're off. We're both trying to offer a service to the folks that we're most attached to and the communities that we're a part of. And I think that's what's significant is mm-hmm. for people that are sort of just thinking about how they want to contribute. It's like just find the best way for you to speak your truth. Mm-hmm. And if that's and that if that's what you're doing, it's gonna make a difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. I mean, it. We need it. We need more folks out here. We need more folks out here ready to um, to write and revise and show that work and um, and to disperse it, you know. So, for sure. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a good place to end. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, no, thank you.